The technical term is absolute pitch, writes Andres Erickson and Robert Poole in their book, Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. Although it is better known as perfect pitch, and it is exceptionally rare, only about one in every 10,000 people has it. Do you have perfect pitch, I wonder? Now, most of us think we sound really amazing singing in our car. But it is something else entirely to sing the correct notes without the radio up loud or without any accompaniment. You would be surprised to learn who had perfect pitch and who didn't. Beethoven is thought to have had it. Brahms did not. Stravinsky did not. Frank Sinatra had it. Miles Davis did not. And what Erickson and Poole explore in their intriguing book is how does one become great at something? In particular, they raise the question, are we born with a gift like perfect pitch or not? The prevailing wisdom has been only a few lucky people are, are born with it. But over the past few decades, right, Erickson and Poole, a different understanding has emerged. And what has changed? Well, first research has revealed nearly everyone with perfect pitch has musical training at a young age, between three to five years old. But note Erickson and Poole, if perfect pitch is this innate ability, something we're either born with or not, then it shouldn't make any difference whether you receive music training as a child or an adult. All that should matter is we get that music training at, at any time. Researchers have also noticed perfect pitch is more common amongst people of a tonal language, like Mandarin. To summarize, up until just a few years ago, this was all we knew about perfect pitch, that you learned it as a child, and maybe you spoke a tonal language like Mandarin. But then everything changed five years ago after an experiment in a music school in Tokyo. This past Wednesday, we began a sacred season in the church here called Lent. It's an old English word that means more or less spring. And during the next 40 days, outside of Sundays, we, we are invited to prepare ourselves for, for new life to spring around us, and I suspect we are all ready for that to occur. And for new life also to emerge from a tomb in Jerusalem. And over the centuries, Christians have prepared for, for spring, for Lent, in different ways, through scripture, through prayer, through taking something out of our life like chocolate or, or alcohol or, or adding something to our life like attending church or a Bible study. In the season of Advent, we viewed the text and stories of that season through the eyes of Mary. This Lent, we are considering the text and stories of this season through the eyes of Peter, the most prominent of Jesus' disciples. And what do we know about Peter? 
We know he, he has two names. His given name was Simon. He was later called Peter by Jesus, as in the Greek word for rock, Petra. Jesus would build the church on Petra, on Peter. Peter is mentioned nearly 200 times in the New Testament, far more than all the other disciples combined. And as we noted last Sunday, noted scholar Stephen Bentz makes the case that Peter is one of the key figures in the history of the world. We began our series on the shore of the Sea of Galilee as Jesus extended a call to Peter to come and to follow him. And we reflected that in Lent we are invited to Listen for that call ourselves, to step out of the rhythm of the life we might be in currently and to step towards the new life that God is calling us towards. This morning we continue to reflect on the texts and stories of Lent through Peter's eyes and find ourselves this morning not on a lakeshore, but on a boat in the lake. The context is this. We are in the middle of the story of Jesus' life. And things are really intense now. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has been beheaded. The disciples have buried the body. And they've told Jesus what happened. Distraught, Matthew records how Jesus went to a a desolate place to pray. But all the crowds follow him, and the crowds become hungry. The disciples want Jesus to send the crowds away. But Jesus says, you feed them. They respond, we only have five loaves and a little bit of fish. And from those meager supplies, the 5,000 are fed. But Jesus' heart is still heavy with with the brutal death of his cousin. And Matthew records how immediately after the 5,000 were fed, Jesus made the disciples get in a boat and go on ahead of him to the, to the other side of the lake. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Have you ever wanted to be alone? Especially after a bad day. After receiving horrible news. Or experiencing the loss of a loved one. Well, that's how Jesus felt. And I suspect he was particularly exhausted after feeding the hungry crowd, so he sent the disciples on that boat like a mother or a father might turn on the video in the family room to catch one's breath. But Matthew continues. Later that night, Jesus was there alone. The boat was already a considerable distance from land and buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Can you see Jesus in your mind's eye? All he wanted was a few moments to himself. But now in silhouette, as if in this black and white movie, the disciples' boat rocks back and forth. Have you ever been on the water and experienced how sound can carry? I suspect Jesus could hear the disciples' anxiety as perhaps they urged each other in panic to row to shore. Matthew continues, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them 
on the lake. Now, today that sentence doesn't necessarily shock us, but in the moment, imagine how Jesus must have felt as he, as he took that first step on the water. He knew the shortest way to the disciples from the mountain to the boat was over the water. In other words, it had to be done. And yet I wonder if the smallest smile crept across his face. As he took that first step, the water began to lap over his sandals, and he didn't sink. I wonder if he thought, look at this. When the disciples saw him walking over the lake, records Matthew, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried in fear. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and suddenly felt as if someone were in your bedroom only to realize it was just moonlight shining through the blinds, a shadow moving across the wall? That's how the disciples felt. Yesterday I just experienced this miracle with the feeding of 5,000, but this was something else entirely moonlight and, and shadows. Jesus said to the disciples, Waves rocking their boat, water splashing against their sandals. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then it happens. If this were a movie, the director would, would zoom in on Peter and, and frame him in close up. Peter replies, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now that's a strange request if we think about it. Peter could have said, Jesus, you, you, could you still the storm? Everyone in the boat so anxious. He could have said, Jesus, could you step into the boat and comfort us because we're all really scared. But Peter doesn't speak on behalf of the group behind him. He wants to be a part of what's happening in front of him. Have you ever known someone like that? They act first and think second. They don't hesitate. But that also means sometimes they can leave people behind. And that's the Peter revealed to us in this text as the wind roars in the disciples' ears. And why does Peter say those words, tell me to come to you on the water? Why that specific request? I thought about that this week, and then I remembered our text last Sunday where the first time Jesus encountered Peter, Peter heard Jesus say these words. Come follow me. So it sort of makes sense in this moment of extreme stress that Peter would reflexively call on the first words he heard Jesus say and mirror them. Peter says, tell me to come to you on the water. Then records Peter, then records Matthew. Peter stepped out of the boat and began to walk towards Jesus. Now, if Jesus had the smallest smile creep across his face, I can imagine Peter grinning from ear to ear as he thought, look at this. 
But then the wind roared once again across the lake. Can you hear it? Peter became afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. The life of Peter with Jesus observes Stephen Banks in his book, Flawed, Forgiven, and Faithful. It was this continual pattern, he notes, of, of invitation and risk and failure and rescue. Peter shows us the best disciples are not those who always succeed. Peter needed to sink, notes Vince, in order to take that next step of faith. And does that ring true, I wonder? In your own life, have, have failures when you literally or metaphorically sank? Did those moments spark growth in your own life? Stephen Bent writes, when we fail while attempting great things, even when our failures are caused by doubt and fear, we are in fact growing in our faith. Because faith is not a possession, but an activity. Faith is not a possession, but an activity. Matthew continues, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught Peter. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they climbed in the boat, the wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Which brings us back to that music school in Tokyo. Erickson and Paul write, the psychologist Ayaka Shakabara recruited 24 children between the ages of two and six and put them in this month-long training course designed to teach them to identify simply by sound various chords played on the piano. The chords were all major chords with three notes, such as a C major with a middle C and an E and G notes immediately above that middle C. The children were given four to five short training sessions per day, each just lasting a few minutes. And each child continued training until that child could identify all 14 target chords. Some completed the training in a year. Others took a year and a half. Then once a child had learned to identify those 14 chords, he tested that child to see if they could correctly identify the individual notes. After completing the training, every one of those 24 children developed perfect pitch. This is an astonishing result, notes Erickson and Poole. While in normal circumstances only one in 10,000 people develops perfect pitch, every one of these students did. The implication is perfect pitch. Far from being a gift that is bestowed upon a few lucky ones, it's an ability anyone can develop with the right training. The study has completely rewritten our understanding of perfect pitch. In other words, it's not a possession. It's an activity. Or Stephen Vince puts it, faith is not a possession. It's an activity. 
We all have to work it. We all have to practice our faith. And Peter helpfully reminds us this morning, everyone fails. We're all going to sink. But the important thing to remember is we can all learn how to tune our ear to hear Jesus say to us, come follow me. Because as pastor and author John Ortberg once put it, if we want to walk on water, we've got to get out of the boat. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.